Well, good morning. And my congratulations again for making it, not just because the clocks have changed, but because it's such a beautiful day outside. Thank you for spending it in here with us this morning. So the clocks have sprung forward, the sunshine has come out, the grass needs mowing. And it's that special time of year, it's that Easter time again, when we celebrate chocolate and pastel colours, when we wear Easter bonnets and we eat sweet and sickly things. And this morning I want us to look together at this passage in the context of one of the greatest symbols of Easter that there is. One of the most celebrated, one of the most recognisable symbols of Easter, one we're all familiar with in church, I know, but I'll bring it to you again this morning. It is the Cadbury's Cream Egg. I sent some willing volunteers out to get one or two of these this morning. I might put them in with the coffees, so um, it might be a mad dash. I need one for the second service, but we'll put a couple in. Uh, if you make it out in time. The Cadbury's cream egg is an absolute Easter giant, and we're going to look at it in, in somewhat unnecessary detail this morning. Let's first of all give you a history lesson, the history of the Cadbury's cream egg. Cadbury's invented the technology to make these little things about 90 years ago in 1923. They only wrapped them, packaged them, and started marketing them in 1971, the year all the greatest things were born. I happen to know... <laughs> That, that makes Cadbury's cream eggs exactly 40 years old, at least in my case only for another week or two. And I'm beginning to start looking the shape of a Cadbury's cream egg. But the most fascinating thing I found about Cadbury's cream eggs uh, that I could learn was they have their own Facebook page. And I'm 40 years old and I have my own Facebook page, which seems inappropriate, but... Cabris Cream Eggs have 2.2 million friends on Facebook. And in order to prove that, and I just caught the eye of somebody looking very guilty, I know that three people in this room are friends <laughs> with Cabris Cream Eggs on Facebook. Because when I went to their page, it says, you know, it's your friends that also like this page. I'm not going to say who they are, but if you look around, at least one of them is very red at the moment while I'm saying that. So, we like Cabris Cream Eggs a lot. An awful lot. Half a billion of these, 500 million of these are produced every year. To make that many, they have to make them 365 days a year. They make one and a half million a day. 300 million are made um, in Bourneville in the UK. The rest are made at around about 10 plants around the world. 200 million are consumed in the UK every year. That's three or four for every man, woman and child in the UK population. And you can only buy them for four months of the year. This makes this, by a factor of two, almost a factor of three, the highest selling confectionery between the 1st of January and this year, the 8th of April, when they will disappear from the shops. My children will tell you that I never miss the opportunity to give an economics lesson about anything. So here's a fascinating economics lesson about the Cadbury's cream egg. You can only buy Cadbury's cream egg for 98 or 99, I guess with a leap year, uh, days this year. But they tried, in the 1980s, selling them all year round. And they discovered that when they did that, they sold less of them. So you really can have too much of a good thing. When they're gone, they're gone. Now, everybody says that everything is bigger in America. I certainly get bigger every time I go. But here's one fascinating fact you can use to amuse your friends and astound your enemies. Cadbury's cream eggs are smaller in America than they are here. And I can tell you they're smaller for a really, really good reason. That's because in America, Cadbury's cream eggs are disgusting. 
I don't know if you've ever tried American chocolate, but it's basically, imagine you take the basic Cadbury's cream egg, you remove some of the milk and you replace it with sand. That's approximately what it tastes like. And then imagine you hollow out the inside and you replace that nice, sweet, sickly stuff with basically disappointment. You bite into one because it looks like a cream egg, it smells like a cream egg, it's got the same wrapping on, and yet it's bitterly disappointing. So on that basis, they decided to make them just a little bit smaller than they are in the UK. So ours are definitely the best cream eggs in the world. So the psychology of these things, you have to put yourself this morning into one of these three categories, or you're one of the 11% of people who don't go with the flow, who don't use one of these three things. So this morning, are you one of the 53% of people who bite off the top, lick out the cream, and then eat the chocolate on its own? Are you one of the 20% of people, I'm sort of in this category, who just bite straight through, just eat it as, it was, as God intended, as a, sort of a, as, as a hard-boiled egg? Or are you one of the 16% of people who bite off the top, then use your finger to scoop out the cream, and you know who you are, and then you lick it off? You know who you are, you 16% of people, and if I shake your hand at the door, I'll know who you are as well. 11% of you do it another way. Perhaps uh, I read you can deep fry these things, apparently, popular in the north. Um, I like them two at a time. I think one is a little bit legalistic, a little bit puritanical, so you should really have more. I think you should refrigerate them. If you're really posh, they're great in a wine fridge because a real fridge is too cold. So uh, put them in a wine fridge, two at a time. Three would be gluttony. That's a sin. We'll pray for you. Two at a time, chilled from the fridge. That's how I eat mine. But of course, this morning, what I really care about is Cadbury's cream egg theology. And it's simple. I've said it already. The Cadbury's cream egg theology is this. When they're gone, they're gone. They have this unique marketing campaign about Cadbury's cream eggs. When they're gone, they're gone. You can't get them anymore. Let me explain by a contrast. This is DFS, a furniture store. I come to church sometimes, a little bit like some people go to DFS. I'm not going to put that in my pocket because it will melt when I need later on. I come to church sometimes like it's sort of a giant DFS. If you've watched television or read a newspaper in the last 20 years, you'll know that occasionally DFS have a sale on. Um, <laughs> it, it may come to surprise you, this is a very good offer, I shouldn't do this in church, but right now you can get 50% off at DFS, nothing to pay for the first year, Four years of just free credit. That's a genuine offer. It ends on Wednesday, apparently. Genuine. I got off their website this week. Great deal. 50% off. Nothing to pay for a year. Four years interest-free credit. The trouble is, we all know, because we've seen it time and time again, that on Wednesday there'll be another offer, maybe a better offer. So sometimes I come to church like it's a sort of a DFS. I come and I try out the furniture and see if I find it comfortable, because I know the offer will still be here next week. So I come, and I come, and I come, and I try out the furniture, and I see if it's comfortable, I see if I like it, maybe I try somewhere else. Because I know the offer's basically still going to be here next week. So this morning we turn to this passage in Luke. I want you to understand that actually the theology of the cream egg is very important, because this is not a DFS. Jesus says something here passionately and robustly. He says, when it's gone, it's gone. The good news is not like a DFS, it's like a Cabri's cream egg. So, would you turn with me to Luke? And we're actually going to start Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Harry brought us this um, when we had our church meeting a few weeks ago. Let's put the passage we're going to look at in context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. 
Now, Luke mentions Jerusalem over and over again. He mentions it twice as many times as any of the other Gospels. And he sets all of these miracles we've been talking about over our previous sermons into context. He talks about those miracles. He talks about those healings. He talks about the people that Jesus meets, and he puts them in the context of this journey. Jesus has set out. He has set his eyes firmly where? On Jerusalem, all the way back in chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely, he set his face determinedly, he deliberately set out for Jerusalem. He plans, he prepares, he sends messengers ahead of him to prepare the way. So when we come these few verses later on, at the beginning of uh, what we read here, where it says, uh, we're now Luke 13, verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Luke is reminding us that Jesus is still on this determined and deliberate journey. He set his eyes ahead. We know his destination. You know, sometimes we um, get surprised. Zoe always tells me when the Cadbury's cream eggs arrive. She's kind of, you know, because they arrive in January every year. And it seems a bit disgusting when they turn up and the, we haven't really got rid of the Christmas wrapping paper. And it's kind of like, you'll never believe it, the Cadbury's cream eggs are here. But, you know, I think they've got that bit of theology right as well. Because all the way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, Jesus has his eyes fixed on his destination, on his destiny. It's woven into each of these miracles and to each of these teachings. And particularly here where Luke goes out of his way in verse 22 to remind us the direction of travel of Jesus, where Jesus has his gaze, where he's going. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And then somebody comes from the crowd and asks him really a perfectly reasonable question. We're now in verse 23. Someone, it doesn't say who, so it's not one of the Pharisees or one of the teachers of the law because it would tell us that. Someone comes from the crowd and asks him, verse 23, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Lots of people ask this question. An even greater number of people worry about it and never ask it. This person comes straight out and asks Jesus in plain English, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I think that puts him firmly in one of two camps of people who ask and answer this question. The first are people who are absolutely sure that they know the number of people. They know the answer to this question. They know the exact number and they could tell it to you. And all of those people know that they're on the right side of that number. And they know that all the people in that number look like them, talk like them, act like them, think like them, go to a church or a member of some sect or group that thinks and acts exactly the same. Those people know the number and they're on the inside and everybody else is on the outside. But everybody who doesn't have that confidence falls in the same camp as this gentleman that asks the question. They find themselves afraid and constantly wondering, how many? Because they're kind of convinced that it better be a big number, otherwise I won't get in. It's the Groucho Marx quote, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me. Jesus doesn't answer with a number. Jesus doesn't say how many Instead, he answers how, but most importantly, when. He doesn't give the man a number. He doesn't say a few or many. Most importantly, he says when. Have a look at verse 24. That's the center of what we're talking about this morning. 
The saved are those who seize their opportunity now, for this is the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus talks about a narrow door. But that doesn't make much sense, so let me change it to you in English. If I said to you that you have a narrow window of opportunity to go out and buy a Cadbury's cream egg, you wouldn't suddenly think about a small, narrow, physical window. You'd know what I meant. A narrow window of opportunity means that the time to buy cream eggs is short. When they're gone on April the 8th, they're gone. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about a physical door that's small. He's talking about a narrow window of opportunity. He's not concerned about the who or the how, but the when. He's already answered the how in John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He's explained who the door is. His concern now, and it's heartfelt and passionate, is that we don't miss that opportunity, for the opportunity is finite. It's a narrow door. So whether you're thinking about a gate, or a window, or a door, the fact that it's narrow doesn't limit the number of people that can pass through it, or the type of people that can pass through it, but it does severely limit the opportunity to enter. In fact, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 29. Jesus says that the door is very wide indeed. The narrow door is wide open. This is the man's main concern. What type of people can be saved? What creed? What race? What sect? What group of people will make it inside? Jesus says everyone can enter through the narrow door. It's wide open. He blows away the exclusivity of the Pharisees and those who say you have to look like me, you have to act like me, you have to follow my rules and follow my ways. He says people will come from all nations, every ethnicity. The Jews will come, the Gentiles will come. There's a bit about the first and the last. The Jews were the first, the Gentiles were the last. Every rule based on class or color or creed or legalism or ritual or cleanliness, all these things don't matter. All that matters is that when the owner comes, the one with authority to close the door, that you find yourself on the right side of that door. And if you're waiting for a word from God this morning, then please know this. That's all that matters. When the owner comes, it's a few verses back in the passage that we're looking at. That's where the authority comes to close the door. It's not the narrowness of the door that limits who can enter or how many. The only thing that limits, the only thing that matters is the authority of the owner to close that door. And the only thing that matters, Jesus says, is which side of the door you choose to be on. Don't be late. The time to enter is now. And entering is a big decision. But it's not as big as choosing to do nothing. For once the window of opportunity is past, we get to verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. The internet hasn't worked in our house all week. I know what weeping and gnashing of teeth looks like. <laughs> Both my teenagers and me trying to talk to British Telecom. Verse 26, then you will say, we ate with you and drank with you and you taught in our streets. That verse breaks my heart because it means that something I rely on won't get me into heaven. Coming to church won't get me into heaven because Jesus says familiarity with me won't open the door once it's closed. 
Don't claim you knew him or met him. Because when the time comes and the door is closed, familiarity with Jesus won't save you. All that matters is which side of the door you find yourself. And he labors the point with passion here. He bigs up the side of the door that we are to enter with this great feast, this great celebration. Doesn't sound exciting to us, but this was the most exciting thing, the most exciting way he could picture what is on the far side of that door. With every celebrity he can find, with every adjective he can give, he colors the side of the door and says, find yourself there, make your way there. He uses the word strive. Do everything within your power to make sure you're on the right side of the door when the owner closes it. This is the same voice of Jesus that calls you by name, pleading you to find yourself on the right side of that door. Because when the door is closed, it's the same voice that will say, I never knew you. He repeats it twice. I, never, I don't even know your name. That's complete rejection. Your name is your identity. And he also says, not just, I don't know you or where you come from. So he won't recognize this church, he won't recognize this village, and he won't recognize who we are or where we come from. We can't rely on any of those things. We must enter while the door is open. Now this is a passage in two distinct parts. On this teaching journey, Jesus is interrupted at this point. It says, we're now uh, verse 31, at that time, at that moment, some Pharisees come along and they interrupt Jesus because they're trying to save his life. At least, that's what they claim. Would you turn just quickly to Luke 11, verse 52? This is just a few verses before, and we'll find out a little something about these Pharisees who are trying to save Jesus' life. Verse 52. Jesus is speaking. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. We're at doors again. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who, are, who were entering. Jesus is mad at the Pharisees because they've locked the door. They're stopping people getting to this narrow door. They're stopping people coming to a saving and knowing knowledge of God. And that's why Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's fixed his eyes there, and this is what, above all, he has to change. And he calls out the Pharisees, and he says, You have taken away the key to knowledge. You have not entered... And you're hindering those who are entering. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. And this makes them mad. Verse 53 and verse 54. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions. Just a few verses later, we find them leaping to his aid. Now, I don't know if they went and told Herod. I don't know if Herod was worried. I don't know if Herod was even involved at all. It doesn't tell us that. But the threat to Jesus and the jeopardy to his journey is real. We have in churches a kind of pantomime idea of who Herod was. He's kind of this baddie, and we get somebody to stomp around the stage when we play him like he's some kind of joke. The man we're talking about was as despicable as the greatest dictators of our time. doesn't matter if you think of Colonel Gaddafi or Pol Pot or Saddam Hussein. Imagine all of those people rolled into one evil, powerful dictator. It's not a joke when the Pharisees come and say, this man who has absolute power to do it is going to kill you if you cross this line in the sand. You see, Jesus was funny when he was in Galilee. I mean, he was a novelty act. He was a magic man. 
He was a nuisance a few verses ago, and he angered the Pharisee. But if he crosses this line in the sand, if he gets closer to Jerusalem, he becomes dangerous to the people in power. And so the Pharisees, with their authority, and Herod, with his, all the power and authority on earth, draws a line in the sand and says, go back, magic man, when you came from. Do not cross this line in the sand. You're not getting to Jerusalem. And Jesus does and says something brilliant. Because Jesus' concern is not for his own safety, it's for Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't care anything about the threat of death. He only cares about you. In fact, Jesus doesn't even see the line in the sand at all because his eyes are fixed firmly on Jerusalem. And that's because Jesus' perspective is so much brilliantly different than ours. I'm sorry we're playing Bible bingo this morning, but if you want to follow, I'm going to quote Luke 12, verses 4 to 6. Because this made me kind of laugh, it kind of made me cry, and it kind of terrified me when I read this piece. But this is Jesus' perspective about that line in the sand. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And then this is brilliant. And after that can do no more. Jesus looks at the line in the sand, and he looks at the threat from Herod, and says, okay, if that's all you can do, if all you can do is kill me, you can't do any more than that. And then he says... I will show you whom you should fear. Not that fox, Herod, not all that power and authority. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Fear the owner of the door. Not that fox, Herod. I love that. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And what a brilliant line. And after that can do no more. It's absurd, unless we see it with the perspective of Jesus. Because our perspective is all wrong. Zoe and I recently went to a parenting teens seminar. Didn't make much help to our parenting, to be honest, but Zoe learned some techniques that have made me far more manageable. The primary thing that we were told about teenagers is this. Teenagers physically appear to be adult. In fact, they are. They're physically fully developed. There's not a lot wrong with them in that regard. But they have one major, crucial, and exceptionally dangerous flaw. The last part of the human mind to develop is the bit at the front, the prefrontal cortex. It's the bit of the, of the brain which can weigh up risks and dangers. It's the bit of the brain that takes our short-term pleasures, our short-term desires, and it weighs them against the long-term impact of what we're going to do. It's why you get so many teenage pregnancies. It's why so many teenagers get addicted to drink and to drugs. It's why, as, as a teenage boy, driving at 125 miles an hour seems incredibly compelling. And it's why probably most of us didn't drive at that speed to church this morning. Because we understand the bigger, the wider, the longer consequences of what's happening. And so, as all preachers do, as we were told that, I started thinking there's a sermon in there somewhere. Because I think, as we sit here this morning, most of us have this teenage brain. Most of us consider ourselves to be physically mature, but spiritually we're teenagers. Our prefrontal cortex is unable to see things the same way Jesus sees it, because our perspective is too short. We see what's going to happen, yes, now as adults, maybe this week, this year, this month. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. Maybe some decision you have to make. Maybe some temptation that's before you. But I would ask you to consider it with Jesus' perspective. Because when we suddenly lift our eyes to Jerusalem, when we see things with this eternal perspective, everything is different. We can say, oh, if all you can do is kill me, and after that you can do no more. 
Most of us have a line in the sand that Jesus faced. A time when our faith gets serious, when the rubber hits the road, when a decision we will have to make through faith will impact and will affect us deeply. And if you find yourself at that point, if there's a line in the sand before you now, lift your eyes to him. Focus your brain on that eternal thinking. There's a great quote from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, and it starts like this, and you won't like it when I first say it, because C.S. Lewis said, you don't have a soul, which is a terrible and inaccurate thing to say. You don't have a soul. But it's brilliant what he goes on to say. C.S. Lewis says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. Now that's not semantics of language or grammar. It's the most important thing I'll say this morning. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. What you have, what you possess temporarily, is a body. And so when Jesus laments Jerusalem in this passage and cries over it, he's crying over your soul. He's crying over those Pharisees who would seek to lock the door and keep you from him. He's crying over a temple which is now barren because God has left it, not because he doesn't care, but because he's coming after you personally. And Jesus doesn't see the line on the sand. He doesn't care about the personal danger because he knows he's dying anyway, and he's dying for something much more significant than the death of his body. He's lifted his eyes to eternity, and he's going to die for you and for me. We can't come away from this passage unmoved by that passion or uncertain about the message. It's written here in black and white. All eternity in the kingdom of God is at stake and the time to act is now. Last time I was in America, they have these brilliant, huge roadside signs for churches. And on one side of the sign, it said in absolutely massive, kind of five-foot-high letters, it said, are you waiting for a sign from God? On the other side of the sign, it said, this might be it. For some people this morning, this might be the sign, because this isn't a DFS. What's on offer from Christ to you is free and open, and his voice is speaking clearly. I pray that our teenage brains may see it afresh from Jesus' eternal perspective that we may step out in faith across whatever barrier or line it is which is preventing us from walking closer and closer to him. But more importantly, I pray that with the open door before us and Jesus calling out our name passionately and clearly with the kingdom of God at stake, are you really still waiting for a sign from God?